listening to Omnis Protocol. I am Charles, also known as Omnis, and I'm here with Sung Soo from Across the Bifrost. Welcome back, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been on a couple times, always a blast, and happy to see your podcast growing. So yeah, and your YouTube content. That was really cool to see as well. Yeah, I got some more stuff planned for that. I'm excited. It's its its own unique animal, but I've also been enjoying everything that you guys are doing over at uh, Across the Bifrost. You're making Pat do more work now, I see. Yeah, branch it out. Eventually, he won't need me, so that's the goal, right? <laughs> you can just be the the overlord, and you just you know let it become its own thing afterwards. I don't know. Maybe I'll retire to my ivory tower. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? <laughs> well, I am very much enjoying your show. I really, I really, especially the the recent stuff you just did, kind of examining the the TTS league. I really hope uh, all of my listeners are checking that out as too. I found it super interesting. Yeah, thanks. We actually have the, the league posted its second set of lists, so we actually have a follow-up episode about that. Um, and yeah, they can follow that at patreon.com slash across the buy for us. So yeah, thanks for the shout-out. Awesome. Well, that kind of plays right into what we're going to talk about today, actually, because we're talking about gaining an advantage once you you start the steps with your opponent. What Atomic Max Games has done really well is like you get some fairly even situations. Like once players have a decent team building strategies, the games tend to be pretty close. But so you're finding these ways to give yourself just a little bit like 1% advantage here, 1% advantage there. And it's actually one of my Patreon listeners. I'm sure you do this with your your Patreons as well. But, you know, whenever someone wants to get into like some discussion about a particular game or a particular roster, sure, let's dig into it. Let's talk about it. And he was really concerned about his gameplay. And when I was discussing it with him, I the things that stood out to me had a lot more to do with team construction and initial, like that initial plans, like before you even start rolling most of the dice outside of priority. So I thought that would be kind of a fun thing for us to talk about today. Like, what are some of the things you want to think about to get that early advantage to try to tilt things in your favor? And so the first one that comes in mind to me is an immediately... The crisis is the first thing that you've got to think about. And I think this is a step that at least it was for me at first, where I kind of glazed over it at first. I was like, okay, let me let me pick Infinity Formula and moving on. Um, was that kind of your path as well, TT? Uh, no, I, I thought the crisis was really important from the get-go. <laughs> I, I think that goes to maybe the list or the way that you're going to play, right? I, I always wanted to focus on playing the crisis, and I kind of tailored my teams around that. I know that other people uh, uh, wanted to maybe just like punch people and throw cars at people with superheroes, which is totally understandable. And it's very easy to see how you'd blip over crisis there. But but I think crisis is really important. I think it's great the way you pointed it out. A lot of people skip on that. And one of the things you kind of alluded to in your intro is, yes, I do think roster construction is one of the largest hurdles out there. And it's not something where you can just net deck a roster and expect to do well that you really kind of have to understand how the pieces go together. And I think starting with a crisis is kind of a great point. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, on the point that you just made, we think we've talked about it before, but you don't know which are the more flexible spots in a roster unless you like talk to the person who made it. You don't because it's not like grabbing a magic deck, right? That specifically says this is the sideboard and this is the main deck. You don't really know that information looking at the 10 and knowing which characters are for which situations. And so I think that's kind of what we're talking about here is one, you want to look at your opponent's 
their roster and have an idea of what sort of um, crisis situations they're going to be more advantaged in. I think one of the easiest ones to look at is Cabal, right? Like they have such a great double barrel team, right? With their ability to like Skull, Modoc, like Ultron and Killmonger or Venom, something like that. And their ability to do that and play on Infinity Formula and that dual corridor team formation is really strong. And if you're going to play against Cabal, I think you really want to be looking at your crisis setup and go, how can I change things up to impact this and like not give the advantage to my opponent at the very least? So in a situation like that where you see Cabal, what are some of your first thoughts? Like if you're going to decide whether you get secure or extract, does that impact your decision knowing your opponent's roster? It should. It, it absolutely should, Charles. And one of the things I do want to highlight is that it's, it's not super realistic to have a plan for every crisis out there, right? I think we both agree that there's just, there's too many permutations. What are we up to like 42 possible permutations of crisis, I think, right now? I do think it's important to have a plan for the popular ones. And I think it's important to understand what your team is, as you said, advantaged on and how you could gain an advantage or put your opponent at a disadvantage on certain crises. So you want to know about crises, particularly for the double barrel list? Is that what you Yeah, let's just say, using an example, right? You know you're facing down Cabal. Like, you've got it. You see one of Pat's rosters, right? You see that Skull, Modoc, Cosmic Invigoration. You kind of know that they have that primed and ready to go. Well, how does that affect your crisis decision making? Well, there's a couple different ways you could approach it. You could try to starve them out and you could try to play in a 15 point game. Uh, that doesn't mean you're playing gamma shelters. And the negative on gamma shelters is everyone has a lot of repetition on it, right? Uh, I, I don't think I don't think that's a shot. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a little sick of practicing on that one, to be uh, honest. Right. So so I don't I, that that is one way you could go, though, right? There, I guess. Let me step back again. There are three ways you could go about it. You could try to you could try to do something to the points they don't like, the threat value. You can try to do something on a deployment they don't like, or you could particularly look at a crisis that they will not enjoy playing on, right? I think those are kind of the important ones there. Um, knowing the double barrel list, right? The double barrel list normally wants to be playing on anything where they can kind of go wide, pick things up, and generate additional power. Um, I personally, uh, being a big Avengers fanboy, as you kind of know, I would, I would try to force them into the meteors, uh, scenario. I know that sounds a little weird, uh, but, uh, controlling meteors can end the game quickly. Um, you can kind of get this early lead that can sometimes appear insurmountable. And then inherently, uh, if you look at their double barrel roster, they don't love interacting with the origin bombs with any kind of certainty. Um, so that's something I personally would look at shifting towards. Uh, I don't know. Did you have another example in mind for yourself, Charles? Oh, well, I was going to actually say that was one of my first thoughts. Like if you're going to be picking secures, I think choosing deadly meteors is a great step to kind of start countering what some of the cabal does. And honestly, there's a lot of really meta teams that are not particularly well prepared for meteors. Um, one thing I want to specific highlight is, you know, obviously if you have the first choice, right, and you're choosing secure versus extract, and I think it's really easy, like say in the Wakanda versus Cabal matchup, you might both be perfectly happy playing on Infinity Formula. And if that's the case, I would lean towards choosing the extract, right? If you think, you know, like, oh, I think they're probably going to pick Infinity Formula. They've got Cabal. They're probably happy to do that and I think I'm pretty prepared for just about any secure, then that may be a good opportunity to try to pick something from the extract side to try to change the game plan. And maybe that's spider infected. Maybe that's picking like a, 
power core or something, something to like throw a wrench in their normal game plans where I feel like if you walk into Wakanda and you're just like, I'm going to choose formula and then they get to choose evac. And now you're playing into their exact game plan exactly the way they wanted. You've kind of missed an opportunity to gain an advantage. Is that something you'd agree with TT? Yeah, that's a great point. And you, you summed it up nicely there. I think it's important to step back and look at, okay, which team is more advantaged in which scenario? And the, the easy way to do that is, is my team better if I pick an extract or a secure? Or is their team better? And that's the thing that you kind of want to nip. And that's hard because you do need a lot of meta knowledge, right? You do need to kind of understand what these different rosters are kind of going for there. Um, so it can definitely be tricky. And I think Spider Infected uh, Invade Manhattan's a great wrench to throw in to a couple different plans, too. BDT doesn't like that either. Um, I, I it's <laughs> it, it can be a very frustrating one to play for any of the super limited character ones or the ones that are hurting for abilities to move themselves. Yeah, whenever you have big expensive characters that are normally your go-tos for holding extracts and then you say, here, have one that's going to potentially move you out of position, that's a really problematic spot. Like, Modok does not want to hold a spider infected. If he gets moved out of position, that can be awful. Yeah, but if you're playing like a Guardians list that really likes to go wide, Spider Infect doesn't hurt you that much. You, you don't, you know, you don't mind as much if these characters end up having to take these funky movements. So that's definitely a good counterplay option. And I think it only illustrates that there's a lot of depth to Crisis. And the first thing I would recommend is people get familiar with the crises they are going to perform well at. Then try to get familiar with the crises that opponent lists are going to perform well at and try to make that weird educated decision like Charles said about can I gain a little bit of advantage here? Um, there's a lot more to it than just I'm going to pick my favorite extract or I'm going to pick my favorite secure. And I think that is, a. I mean, I think we've all fallen into that trap in at least one or two games where we're just like, you know what, I'm just super comfortable choosing Infinity Formula or Extremist Consoles or whatever your favorite one is. And maybe it's not the right choice for you, but you just feel comfortable with it. And I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of go out and try out some other ones and get comfortable with them so that you are ready to choose them in that situation where it's not the best for your opponent and now you're prepared for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, while we're on the topic of choosing crisis, is there any anything else that you want to throw in there for people to think about while they're trying to factor this into their decision making process? I know you mentioned it on your Thanos episode. I just want to reiterate how much the reality gem skews any of the interact crises. So if you yeah. think you're going to be going against Thanos with the reality gem, keep that in mind. They might be able to generate a huge advantage by taking something like meteors or alien ships or something like that, where they're going to be able to generate that crit that they need to interact with something, and you're still going to have to roll that naturally. So keep that in mind, too. Not where somewhere that you can gain an advantage, but somewhere where you can deny your opponent an advantage. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's something that people missed. I still had a comment on my YouTube channel where people are like, hey, man, I don't think that the uh, reality stone affects uh, crisis. And I was like, it says right on the card for interact rolls. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. And so I think people glazed over that. It's probably the best part of the card, but that's a whole nother conversation. Ooh, best part of the card. That's tough. I mean, it's definitely great. <laughs> All right. Well, so this is to kind of just summarize this for the listeners. Don't glaze over the crisis step and don't fall into habits. Try to really examine the situation, especially, you know, 
you're playing against your best buddy and they've gotten tons of practice with their roster and you kind of are going to get an idea of what they want to play and try like it's both great for you guys as players to experience some other things and if they get that practice versus you that's going to help them down the road when they find it out in a tournament and that sort of thing so go ahead accept the challenge and try to shake things up there and maybe experiment if you just feel like you're all guys are you're practicing the same thing over and over again, throw another one in. You might find something where you didn't realize you were going to be good into this particular crisis until you tried it. So get out there, kind of experience those. This is really your first opportunity to gain an advantage. And I I can't really stress that enough. Like utilize that moment because it might be the biggest one of all the ones we're talking about. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. Uh, I think it's a second chance. I think roster building might be the first chance to gain an advantage, but we'll, we'll come Yes, <laughs> true enough, true enough. But once you're there, you can't really change that. So, But that does lead us into the second topic, which is when you're actually constructing your team. So I'm going to let you kind of lead off here, but what are some of your initial thoughts like, or things that you look for in your opponent's roster to try to key into your decision-making when you're picking your team? There's a lot here, and I think it kind of goes back to the same thing we talked about with Crisis. Are you going to be able to set the tone, uh, your magic analogy, right? Are you going to be the beats? In which case, can you just select your roster and kind of force the issue? Or are you the team that needs to be reactive in order to gain an advantage here? Uh, so some characters are just, uh, I hate using the term stronger, but they're, they're favored in individual matchups. So if you had contain the team that has more stronger characters, you might be able to select those strong characters and have yourself an advantage. Uh, a lot of times that's not the case, and you're going to have to be reactive to your opponent, and you're going to have to have a plan uh, for some of the things your opponent can throw at you. Most most recently, Thanos, uh, but you need a plan for Gamma Launch uh, Thor. That was obviously really popular. Wakanda Wave, Cabal Double Barrel. These are all things that you need to have uh, so, some kind of plan for. Um, is there one matchup in particular you want to start with, Omnis? Well, let's see. I think a good example here is, I think, how you're going to deal with Wakanda because of all the pushes, right? And so if I were to look down and I would see a Wakanda roster across from me and I see the full list of Wakanda, there's a couple things that I would think in mind or (laughs) think in mind. There's a couple things that I would keep in mind. One, if you're seeing like Black Panther and Shuri and you know that Wakanda Forever is on there and they have a high probability chance of dropping Wakanda... Think about the characters that are harder to push around, like Crossbones, like Vision. Um, think about characters like Rocket and Groot that can potentially like deny them the push because Rocket can shunt the attack to Groot and Groot's in front, so he gets pushed into Rocket, that sort of thing. And Killmonger does not like trying to usurp the throne on Loki with a mind gem. Like, that's one of the worst situations for him. So look for things like that where you can go, oh, I think my opponent wants to do this. And then you can kind of include things that may throw a wrench in those plans. Do you have any other thoughts that you'd want to like throw in on kind of like the anti-Wakanda plan? I do want to take it a little further and not surprisingly, I'll stay on brand. I just, just kind of growing that into an Avengers thing as well. Bishop <laughs> is a great counter picking piece for the reasons that Charles kind of laid out there. We don't like to go into that, but phasing his ability to become uh, immune to different things there is, is really important. And his ability to kind of control his uh, resistances are also uh, very relevant for, for different matchups we'll get into later, whether it's psychic attacks or other things. The last thing is that the value of Captain America or Shuri 
varies wildly based on what your opponent is planning on doing with their attacks. And in a matchup versus Wakanda Wave, uh, Cap actually can provide a lot of value. Uh, his ability to kind of soak things up when your opponent doesn't want to. Uh, in addition, these are normally low damaging attacks, so he doesn't really ever take damage off of them. Is really, really valuable. So I know a lot of listeners out there of your podcast and mine have expressed frustrations around Captain America lately. Sometimes. I understand that there are some games he's not incredible, uh, but if you put him in good situations, if you're able to gain an advantage with him, he, he can still be a very uh, important piece. Yeah, being able to redirect attacks where you can have someone who hasn't activated then take that Shuri attack and still be able to walk back onto the crisis, that's really impactful. And so I absolutely agree that Cap can certainly play into that plan and screw things up for your opponent. Yeah. Um, Symbol is another great card to throw in there. You know, if, if they're using Wakanda forever for a lot of the pushing shenanigans, you can just kind of re respond to that with an Avengers Assemble, right? And get yourself right back up the field. Yeah. And with that, uh, tactical analysis is also a great one to include. Like that, that can save you games if you know you're playing against a push and a throw team, where just your ability to go, okay, well, I'll tactical analysis on my last turn to have this other guy walk back onto a key crisis. Like in Gamma Wave, that could save you three points when Black Panther like double moves and then Wakanda forevers and push, you know, your your distance person off of that crisis. If you can just tactical analysis or Avengers assemble them back into place that that can save you a game right there. And so that that's something and maybe that comes back to your your roster design comment. Like you need to have some of these tools in there to begin with so that you have these options. Yeah, Absolutely. So let's also talk about, say, Cabal, because one of the things I obviously I've always get a lot of questions about when you're seeing MODOK across the table. And I, I just want to shout out to Corvus Glaive and Proxima and Black Dwarf having these characters with three mystic defense and in various different invulnerabilities. They can be much better characters to position across from Modok than some of the things that we've seen in the past. Like, because every time he deals one less damage, he's getting one less power to funnel into his rerolls. And honestly, Corvus Glaive loves making attacks on Modok because if he gets to use Glaive's Edge, he counts blanks as successes, and Modok turning wilds into blanks means he still gets the success. And so that that can really stack up against Modoc. And so I think having some characters where you know they're not as disadvantaged into Modoc can be really important for your roster. Yeah, so I think there's two important things there. One's uh, target analysis, right? Where you want your characters to go. And I think what you laid out was a great example of Corvus. And the other is, like you said, just gaining these advantages uh, that you kind of want to exploit. The other character I want to take a minute and shout out for going into... Mo well, first, Vision's actually pretty good in the Modoc. Don't overlook Vision. Four yes. Miss is pretty huge. Vision's pretty good at it. Uh, Ronin. Uh, Ronin's fantastic into Modoc. Uh, Ronin's a great character, right? He has four Mystic Defense. In addition, he could judge Modoc, and Modoc wants nothing to do with judgment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that, those are just the two off the top of my head that I think would additionally give Modoc issues. And those are important to keep in mind when you see Modoc, right? So you can kind of look at your roster, make sure you build a diverse roster, and know that Modoc, okay, what's Modoc? What is Modoc in a nutshell? Because Charles and I are talking about how to counterplay him, right? But Modoc is a high damage dealer who deals most of his damage via Mystic, and he's got a bunch of hit points on his front side. So you need to be able to hit with a reasonable amount of burst. You need to be able to control that damage income with decent Mystic defense. So that's the reason we're kind of listing these characters off. 
Yeah, for sure. And anything that these are just some of the the more significant things that are going to stand out where you can go. If you know your opponent likes playing Modoc, then you want to have a plan and not necessarily just drop your like, I have these five characters that I like playing. See if you can do some little tweaks. What are your what are your flexible characters? And you can tweak things around. I think Venom is another really easy one to look at, because obviously having a character like Vision that can't be pulled, but then also has energy attacks to help, you know, penalize that low defense and attack him from outside of his counterattack range. Those are other things that you, you know, those are the sort of things you want to think about in your actual team construction to, again, just give you that little bit of an advantage in that situation. Yeah, and just to dovetail on something before, I know uh, some of you know me. I, I love dice math. Jacob's basically surpassed me in all that ways. This game is all about small incremental advantages, right? The, the basic attack to defense is only a 12.5% advantage. So anything we can pile on top of that, like being advantaged in the number of attack to defense dice and things like that, they just kind of pile up and they get you more statistically, a statistical higher advantage to come out ahead, right? Because the deviation in this game is high. So you really need as many advantages as you can to kind of maximize the odds of it going your way. Yeah, and that's I think I think a core thing to keep in mind for this game is that the adaptive player really has the advantage in this game as compared to a lot of other strategy games. You're all because there is a lot of lot more swingy moments. You can't just go, this is my formulaic plan, I'm going to execute it, and then things will just go this way every game and you you rehearse that and practice it. And you can to a certain extent, but you'll play one game and then attack will spike and do nothing. And in the next game, you could play it out the same way and that attack spikes and dazes someone. And then the whole game forks off into a whole different experience. And how you improvise in that moment and how you adapt is really important. And so having some flexibility in your game plan is potentially more important, I think, in this game than almost any other miniature game that I've played. Is that something that you would also agree with, TT? Yeah, comparing it to every other miniature game I've ever played is rough. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm here all day. I just kind of think about it. I do think it's important to be flexible. I cannot overstate how important it is. I think to have an opening plan. Uh, we're going to cover yes, it a little bit. Sure. How am I going to deploy? How am I going to start my initial movements? Who's going to activate first? But then, like you said, things are not going to go the way you want, and you need to understand. Okay, that plan was great. Let's move on to something else. You need to have contingencies for how things are going to go. I'm gonna. For an example, I'm going to take the Hulk Thor uh, cap list, if you, if you don't mind, Charles, right? That go plan is they're going to activate late. Thor is going to go up, and Thor is going to daze a character at the end of round one. They're going to activate with priority, and Thor is going to KO that character at the start of round two. What happens if Thor doesn't daze a character at the end of round one? You have to be ready for that. If you're not, that list just kind of falls apart. But that is going to happen. Like, Thor is great. Thor rolls a lot of dice, but if you miss the wilds for the throw, if they end up rolling high in the defense, he might not daze that character, and you have to have a plan in place in order to kind of work around that scenario. And a sort of shout out to another podcast that I love, Recalibration Matrix is a great card in that situation. I could not imagine running Thor launch and not having Recalibration Matrix to help Thor deal with some of those weird spikes, ups or downs. Um, but uh, I want to talk about at least one or two more um, situations where you may want to shift your 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 normal team around a bit. And more so than just what your enemy team is throwing at you, we've already mentioned Deadly Meteors a little bit. If your opponent throws that wrench at you and is like, now what are you going to do with Deadly Meteors? 
I personally love like if I start if I see deadly meteors, I'm immediately looking at the Asgardians in my roster and go Thor, Valkyrie, Loki, Hela, anything that generates multiple power that can grab an extract and interact with the uh, uh, with a meteor on turn one is huge and i i love shifting those into my roster as much as possible when i see deadly meteors does anything else jump out at you like if you see deadly meteors the sort of improvisations that you make to deal with that crisis i will consider i mean this one's pretty straightforward but i will definitely consider my energy to find higher characters and a higher clip there for sure Uh, this is one of those scenarios nathan and i disagree this is one of those scenarios where i see it on the table i might leave vision at home uh, as much yeah. as I love vision in an Avengers, like that two defense dice out there can can definitely be a hindrance sometimes. So I'll just take another glance at my roster. Uh, Meteors, I think, is one of the ones that you need to have some kind of idea on how you're going to play it. Because otherwise, like you said, it can be a total wrench. Um, so I'm just going to look through and just basically just the defense and how I'm going to interact with the thing is pretty important. Yeah. I also think, obviously, with the reality gem, we now know about that, right? And it's, you know, we were already talking a little bit about its, you know, interaction. If you have the ability to take Corvus with the reality gem or Thanos with the reality gem into um, Deadly Meteors, that feels like it can be a huge advantage for you because that shifts that math in a dramatic way. Uh, yeah, let's let's take that a step further, Charles, because you're, you're kind of, I know, I know you know this, we just haven't iterated it yet. By taking the reality gem in your roster, you are greatly dissuading your opponent from putting meteors on the table. <laughs> don't want to play probably meteors. true. I'm, I'm being honest. If you don't want to play yeah. meteors, right? Fit th- okay. Fitting Thanos in a gem in is hard. Corvus in a gem might be very viable. Fit them into your roster, and maybe in the beginning crisis, just mention that you have Corvus in the reality. <laughs> it's like casually drop it out there. Oh man, I love Corvus on meteors, right? And then your opponent go, oh wait a minute, but. <laughs> just if you if this is something you don't want to play there are ways you can skew your roster so when you're playing against people like charles or myself or all of these people listening to ominous protocol that really want to level up their games where you can get into that ah but i know that you know that i know that you know scenario so you can skew crises being taken with your roster selection and it is important to look at your roster and your opponent's roster when kind of making those crisis selections so i do think that's an important kind of chicken and the egg thing to go back to the opening of the podcast yeah, I mean, I think the just the ability to take, I mean, I think Corvus and Proxima in general are actually going to fit into a lot of rosters because they have a lot of versatility to be used in a surprisingly large amount of ways. And if you can fit in the reality gem and someone looks down at your roster and go, you can run Corvus with the reality gem. Am I going to want to drop deadly meteors into that? And that answer might just be no. I, I think it. <laughs> if if I don't have a good meteor plan, <clears throat> right? I don't want anything to do with you having a reality gem on it, right? I, I think that's that's given. And, yes, uh, for sure. Ships is another one. I, I don't want to play alien ships. Yeah, that that's going to impact things there. I will say I think you should have, like, I do think that Deadly Meteors is going to end up being one of the more important crisis. In, once the meta starts developing more, this is going to be a really important counterplay, and I don't think it's going to be viable for rosters to not have a plan for Meteors. I think that that's going to be something you got to you got to at least have a reasonable plan for if not like oh i think i'm advantaged here but make sure that you've looked at your roster and go what am i going to play into meteors at 17 what am i going to play in meteors at 18 and what am i going to play into it at 19 and make sure that there's not a spot there where you're like 
all right, I'm screwed with this threat level. Yeah, that's really important. Please don't ever play a point down. Just don't do that. Just yeah. <laughs> please don't. It hurts me. It hurts Charles. We both yeah. like we cry out like when Alderaan explodes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. The other thing that I think disturbance is disturbance in the force. I think Black Order Alien Ships is also going to be a really popular one. I think for a while we were seeing uh, people didn't want to play these variable ones, but with the inclusion of the reality jam and the additional space, a 17 to 20 threat, I think both of those are going to see a, I think we're going to see more and more of them. Um, I will throw this out there. I don't know if this is going to become a popular team, but I have realized if you play Black Order with Red Skull, you can end up in situations where Thanos can actually try um, to get the Kree power core twice in the first turn where you can like use power of the cube to move Thanos forward. And if he's got the time stone or the uh, sorry, the time stone or the space stone, he has the ability to move up, like interact with one. Then if he doesn't get it, move and interact with the other one. It's uh, like it's it's kind of it's it's scary <laughs> to say the least. And so the, the odds of him getting it on turn one are huge if they want to go that route yeah i mean thanos does some weird <laughs> thanos yeah. does some weird things and, and yes. need to be for them to happen yeah and i think planning for thanos is kind of its own thing that we're only like barely tapping into but you had already kind of mentioned this and i think we should probably dive into it in a little more detail but now deployment right you've you've picked your you picked the crisis and now you've tried to create the best team that you have but you still have to create those matchups that you want on the table. You don't just get to automatically deploy the perfect counters against the per, you know, against what your opponent doesn't want to see. Like you're going one by one. So what are your what are some of your first thoughts when you start thinking about how am I going to deploy characters and how and what order am I going to deploy them in? The very first thing is I'm just I'm trying to be very very table terrain aware. Um, let, let's do the callback to the Wakanda wave. Are there places that I can get to turn one where I'll be braced or I'll be when I say braced, I mean, buttoned up against terrain. Is there somewhere where I can wedge my base so I physically can't be pushed? I think yeah. that's important. Does their kind team pinned kind of, you know? Yeah, exactly. Their team, Wakanda, doesn't. Well, OK, let me step back. Some of their characters don't deal with terrain very well. Can I, you know, can they end up behind a couple large pieces of terrain where it's going to be a hindrance for them? You know, so so can I get myself an advantage there? So terrain is the first thing I kind of look at. Makes sense. Um, I also want to throw this out. This is something I did not realize at first, and it came up. It came up in a game, and I had to double check. You can't pass in deployment. No and sure that's can. an easy thing <laughs> to overlook. So if you're a three-character team and you have priority... They're going to, and you're facing off against like a five character team. You're going to have your whole team on the table and they'll have two characters to counter deploy with. And that's a serious thing to think about. There is no passing. And so just keep that in mind. That can, that can be a real rough spot to be. And even just having that one where it's like, oh, I'm deploying four and they're deploying five. So they're going to get there. Actually, they still end up with uh, two spots where they get to pick the last two. It's that's, that can be rough. And so, but you need to take advantage of that and you're not set up right. You can easily deploy and be like, I don't really have any other options to where these can go. Yeah, you can definitely kind of end up in a situation where you're like, well, I just have to run up the middle of the table and see what happens. Uh, but you don't actually have to run up the middle of the table. You might just have to deploy in the middle of the table. And then your first turn moves can be, uh, 
counterplays there. If you have counterplay pieces, though, you you want to hold them as long as possible and look at where you can deploy them. The flip side of that is you can often tell, you know, based on like, okay, if they deploy Red Skull, you kind of have a good idea where Modoc's going to end up, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, so you can do some working around that. If they deploy Hulk, all right, you kind of know where Thor is going to go, right? Because they have to be close enough for each other to get thrown. So there's definitely some counterplay there uh, where you can kind of guess how your opponent's team's going to go out. If you see Nebula on the opposing team, you're like, okay, well, Nebula's going to line up opposed to one of mine, right? And they're going to shoot across the table. So there's a couple different things you can look for there. But yeah, deploying so that your models are put in advantageous positions are very, very important. And you want to look for telegraph first plays too, right? Like, you know, I mean, Thanos teleports the world, Red Skull moves MODOK up, right? Gamma launch. These are all things you want to be ready for first turn because they, they are probably coming. Uh, drop off is another big one. We've talked about drop off before. Yeah, any of those you want to watch for the setup is going to kind of dictate where the next character is probably going to have to go. And that can be an advantage for yourself, too. If you if they deploy Red Skull and so, you know, MODOK is coming there and you deploy stuff that MODOK doesn't want to face across from Red Skull, you might put him in a spot and go, do I have to improvise and put Modoc in a different spot? And then, then the, he doesn't have access to cosmic invigoration because they're on opposite sides of the table. And you can put your opponent in a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation. Um, you can also do something where you're like, I want Killmonger. I don't want Killmonger going after character X. So I'm going to specifically deploy my highest character, like my highest threat character early to try to like bait the Killmonger drop so that I can deploy away from him. Like you have that sort of strategy to think about as well. Yeah, that's a good one, right? And you get into that, like we talked about it before, like I know that you know that I know that you know that this is wrong. Uh, you can end up in some weird situations, but getting Killmonger to play it on the table is important, right? It lets you drop Valkyrie or whoever else you're using as your anti-Killmonger piece in position, kind of knowing where they need to go. So uh, yeah, definitely. And then sure, counterplay, going back to teams, counterplay for Killmonger is just, okay, take a high point character. Do not allow Killmonger to pick the character he goes after, right? <laughs> yes. Thor or Thanos or someone into your roster. Remember the gems count for threat. So Corvus with a reality gem is a perfect example. Charles mentioned that earlier for something else. But, but controlling where Killmonger has to go is really, really big. Right. And that can be a really powerful thing, like choosing to take the mind gem with Loki and then going, well, now my it would be really easy in like Avengers, right? Loki's a great Avenger and you have a bunch of four cost Avengers and then you take Loki at five and you're like, the only person you can usurp has trickster and generates three power per turn. So good luck with that. Um, but I also want to mention that when you're first deploying, you can choose some flexible deployment options. Like say, any of your long movers that want to go after an extract, say like in hammers, where you've got two of them that are kind of right in the middle of the board, but near the board edges, both of your long moving characters, like say Black Panther or Proxima, both of those don't mind having a hammer and can be deployed centrally and still go after either hammer. And so keeping something like that in mind so you can do an early deploy that doesn't give your opponent any information that that can also be really significant. 
Yes, this sounds stupid and it sounds silly. And my wife definitely looked at me confused when she walked in on me doing this. Uh, But I just deploy these scenarios when the game first started and I tested opening movements like that. You know, just measure stuff out. Can a double long mover make it there? Okay, how far can a double medium mover make it? Like, and you want to do those things where you can kind of hide or shade your deployment as much as possible. Ideally, if I can drop my entire deployment right in the middle of the table and you really don't know where everything's going, that's perfect for me. Uh, So just (laughs) take a minute, go set up your mat. Put your deployments down, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, and then just like measure out where your models can get to when. I think that's very important knowledge to have in your head. Oh, 100%. I have done it many times. I, I, I've i said this quite a few times on the podcast. During this crisis, I have played many games against myself, just trying to see what sort of little things I pick up on going through the motions and going, oh, all right, if I deploy like this, this can create a problem because it just gives this away. Like, say, Wakanda Wave. Doc Ock is almost always going to be one of your guys that goes after an extract, but he's not quite fast enough to deploy centrally and still go after either side. And so once Doc Ock hits, you kind of know that's the side that Wakanda wants to go after that extract. And that can give you information because if you're actually going first, you could go steal that extract and then leave Doc Ock out of position. And so the more, more you can do things like that and try to take the optimal play away from your opponent. That's good. Like I said, that's what this whole episode is about getting the advantage that can give you just a little bit of advantage where they may have to have a Koye pick up an extract that they didn't want a Koye holding because she could be a little bit more vulnerable to getting shot down. I think that sort of thing. Yeah, and it might not seem like a big deal, but I think what Charles and I are trying to emphasize is like these small little advantages you can get along the way, they eventually kind of pile up, right? If you can get a small edge in crisis and then a small edge in team construction, another one in deployment, right? Those can kind of really add up over the course of a long game. Yes, I mean, that that is the core goal of this episode is to try to let you tie into some of these little things that we're thinking about. And honestly, I think, TT, you probably agree with me here, but... Most of these I'm thinking about is because I messed them up at some point and I got caught in one of these mistakes. And then I was like, huh, not going to do that again. Yeah, I mean, losing is the best way to learn something. I definitely agree with that sentiment. Well, I thought you don't ever lose. So please don't. Oh, no, I lose a lot. Cross the veil. Losing is very important. Don't be afraid to lose. And hey, hey, this is really important. Just general MCP advice. Play your game out. This is not yes. one of those games where if you're behind on turn two, you forfeit and you re-rack. Play the entire game out. It's, it's actually really, really, really important. I had a game at LVO where uh, on turn one, Black Panther got dazed with one attack. And my opponent was like, well, that was a huge dice spike. Do you want to just call it and re-rack? I'm like, no, we're playing this out. Not only did I win that game, that is the one and only game where I KO'd my opponent's entire team. <laughs> And that was something where, like, well, having Black Panther start the next turn with, like, eight power, shit just started blowing up. And so that that was one of the things, like, you want to see how that stuff plays out. So I absolutely 100% agree with TT there. Play it out, because there's a lot of games where I'm like, this seems over. And then you just have one dice roll go wrong, and you're like, crap that character has one health and maybe they have to use an extra tactics card or something that suddenly just shifts all of the math back into your favor or at least gives you a shot right and then you might be able to take advantage of it yeah you and i talked about the you know the the 15 point hulk thor uh capitalist a long time ago um 
I like the list. I've played the list a lot. And, and, and the list tends to prey on your opponent feeling demoralized and kind of giving up. Uh, when you get that character literally killed, KO'd, on the top round, to a lot of people think they've lost the game, and they kind of just kind of phone it in for a lot of times. I've seen that in the TTS League and in other places, but it's, it's important. Like it's just gonna happen. You got a lot of other stuff. Keep playing the game. So, uh, yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely play games out for sure. And it's you know where characters are gonna get days. And honestly, I think it's weird because this is a game where you don't actually lose your character nearly as often as you do in a lot of other games. Like I've had a lot of War Machine games where I'm like, here's my pretty new dragon, and it dies right away. It doesn't happen that much in this one. Usually your pretty model gets to stick around. But um, all right. Well, I think we've kind of hit the key points that we wanted to get to in the the main episode. Was there anything else that you wanted to get out there, TT, that maybe we, you know, rush past too quickly? No, I think that's good. I think just like make or make a roster with a pre- make a roster with a purpose. Uh, I know it can be overwhelming to look at all the crises. So what I'll say is like, figure your best crisis, figure your worst crisis. And that gives you a lot of information and yeah, just be deliberate in your choices. Yeah. I think I posted something in discord recently and I don't think I have it handy, but I basically created like a little note for myself when I start going through um, my roster, like, okay, I'm creating a new roster and I want to figure out what, what sort of things I'm going to be using. Um, I kind of go through a list and I'm like, okay, what am I going to play into Gamma Wave? Like, what's my 15-point team into Gamma Wave? And make sure I've got something there. And then I'll usually go into, okay, what am I going to play into Infinity Formula at 17, 18, and 19? Like, do I have something solid for each of those spots? And then I'll go, like, Deadly Meteors. Do, do I have something for Deadly Meteors at, you know, 17, 18, 19? And then from there, then, then I can... That usually gives me a good idea if I still have a few flexible spots and whether I'm like, no, this is all every I need every one of these characters. And that that's usually gives me at least a rough idea. Is that kind of uh, similar to what you go through, TT? (laughs) Yeah, uh, yes and no. But yeah, I think that's a good exercise to go through. There's nothing wrong with the way Charles is approaching it. And I think that's a great uh, that's a great point. Yes, I think that's fantastic. Uh, my, my roster building is weird because I'm always just trying to get new stuff into the podcast. So it's not, I don't oh, yeah. fight. It just ends up being a little different. So I, I definitely feel that as well. Where I'm always like, want to try new stuff. Where does it fit in? But yeah, it right. just fights for like natural tendency to like optimize things, right? Like I would love to just be playing a list and iterating and optimizing on it, but I'm like, well, this is new. I just have to try it. Okay. A lot of the time when I have like purely new stuff, sometimes I'm just like, I will ask people like, hey, can I just can we just play like this setup because I want to try this team and these characters and then you just play whatever you want and like let's throw some dice and get some of that baseline in when you're just like this is new stuff. I just want to get some get some reps in and don't necessarily have a roster refined right away. It's getting actually harder and harder for me to refine a roster once I have one that I like really, really like and have put tons of effort into starting a new roster over is a it feels like a lot of work. Yeah, it can be a lot of work. And, and I think what you said with a new character is a great way to get an initial taste. I think the logical step then is, okay, what crisis does this character synergize with? Right, great. What other characters does this character synergize with? And you've got to logically build your roster. So if you're really excited about, say, Gwen coming out, when you evaluate Gwen, like, great, evaluate her in a vacuum, look at her in terms of crisis, look at her in terms of teams, figure out the affiliation that's going to work best and kind of grow from there. But yeah, I, I think what you outlined is a fantastic way to go about roster building. 
Excellent. Well, uh, like I said, I think we hit all of our points for the main episode. Um, TT and I do have a bonus episode for you. We're going to be diving into redeployment and kind of what that means for us in the Patreon episode. So if you're supporting me on Patreon, I appreciate it. If you aren't, I totally understand. That's why I got these free episodes for you every week as well. And whether you support me or not, I would absolutely go over and check out Across the Bifrost. What TT and Pat put out is awesome. I try to check out every episode as soon as I can. Yeah, thanks for that. And to be honest, like if you had to support one of us, go support Charles. He does good bonus content for everyone. It's a, it's a good thing to support. Oh, you're too kind, man. Um, well, again, TT, thank you so much for recording with me. It's been a blast, and I'm, I'm happy that I was able to have Pat on a couple of times so I get the whole, whole Across the Bifrost experience. No, yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's always fun. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. And so I think my last piece of advice is go out, listen to Across the Bifrost, because those nerds are OP. Yeah.